1: Well, it's been quite a few months for California, especially as it relates to their main utility. That's PG&E. It is the worst performer by a country mile in the S&P 500 today, down 48%, I believe, Carol. And that is owing to the fact that bankruptcy uh, is looming largely tied to liabilities to the wildfires that swept through California The liabilities may exceed $30 billion. Their CEO has has stepped aside. Mark Chediak is our energy reporter out in San Francisco. He joins us for our Bloomberg 960 studio there. Uh, So, Mark, what happens next? Obviously, the market reacting uh, pretty dramatically to this. How close are we to a filing here?
2: Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, So... Essentially what the company said this morning is they uh, plan to file for Chapter 11 protection um, in 15 days around January 29th. So uh, basically it's a uh, a waiting game at this point. The uh, company was obligated to notify workers 15 days in advance of a bankruptcy filing based on a state law that passed last year uh, that was an attempt to address some wildfire liability issues. So uh, it's looking pretty inevitable that uh, that PG&E, which is the largest uh, utility in California and uh, provides uh, service to uh, about 15 million people here in northern central California, it looks uh, fa- fairly certain they're going to file.
0: Can you just explain to me? I was reading in on this story about the moves that the company took to kind of limit their liabilities. Um, is that abnormal? Is that
2: weird? I'm sorry, which moves are you uh, specifically referring to?
0: This was talking about, um, I'm looking for now where I read it in the story, but it's basically, didn't they they, re- they reached out to the state so that if something went wrong, that their exposure was limited.
2: Yeah, so um, what happened is the company lobbied uh, state lawmakers pretty heavily last summer. Right. Uh, for some protection to these uh, crushing wildfire liabilities. And what resulted from that was a law that was passed, um, the law that I referenced before. And this law basically, um, first of all, it allows it allows the utility to sell bonds uh, backed by customer rates uh, to cover some of these wildfire costs. The other thing it it did was it directed the state regulatory agency to determine how much financial pain the company's shareholders could take Uh, before the company was allowed to pass along these costs on to customers. Now, what the company said this morning, basically, is essentially that that this process of figuring out how much they're going to have to pay and how how much they'll get backed up by the state, Mm. all of that is going to just take too long for them.
1: And so, uh, tell us about the departure of the CEO. I mean, I guess it's not shocking to have uh, the top uh, executive resign in this sort of situation. But what does it mean in the short term uh, for PG&E?
2: Well, in the short term, you're going to, the general counsel is uh, going to take over um, operations of the company, heading the company. Um, that's a that's on an interim basis. They're now searching for a new executive. Uh, although it, it you know will be challenging to find somebody. as as they're uh, plunging into a bankruptcy. Um, Geisha Williams uh, had been their CEO for two years. She'd been the company for uh, more than a decade. She had actually headed up the company's electric um, operations uh, before assuming the mantle of CEO. Uh, Her appointment was quite unique in many ways. She was the first Latina uh, CEO of a Fortune 500 company when she was named. She was the first female uh, CEO of PG&E when she was named um but her tenure was largely marked by um the company having to respond to these uh devastating wildfires
0: so mark but i guess what's kind of fascinating to me too is that they're they are going to what go through a chapter 11 reorganization and then come out and still exist in some form and still be a utility In the state of California, I mean, somebody's got to provide utilities, correct? Yeah, that's right. Like, how does, like, I'm just trying to get my head around. So do they they go through all of this terrible stuff and then, and and more terrible for the folks who lost their lives and so on in in the fires. But nonetheless, they come out on the other side as still a corporate entity, a publicly held entity, still supplying utilities to the state.
2: Well, that's right. So the state still needs a utility to deliver power to a to uh, its residents, so um, yeah. that part of the business is not going to, you know, just dis- dis- just disappear. Right. Um, the future structure of the company uh, may come into question. Uh, so, in the bankruptcy proceeding, it's possible the company ha- may have to sell off parts of its business. It may sell off its uh, natural gas uh, delivery operations. Um, it could be ge- it could be restructured in a-, in a certain way that it ends up. Kind of looking to, uh, quite different from what it looks like right now, we just don 't know what that process is going to look like. I mean we do know that there'll be an entity that's delivering power to Californians, and the lights aren 't going to go off right but how what form and shape that takes is still is still an open question, and we also at the same time have the california's uh, top regulator is looking at potentially um, uh, has basically said that they want to look at uh, potentially restructuring the company so right. It looks like that might now happen uh, through a bankruptcy process. Well, and you
0: want it to be strong on some level, right, Jason? Because you right. want it to be able to function well so that there aren't problems going forward. Well,
1: and it's a massive state, and obviously there are a lot of political considerations coming in with the new governor, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mark Chediak, energy reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio out there in San Francisco. Certainly uh, one that we're beginning to watch, and as we say, it is by far the worst performer in the S&P, down 48%.
0: Well, that's what M&A companies say, right, together forever. <laughs> or at
1: least until I get a better deal.
0: Exactly. Or until I do a spin-off. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've until already... I sell you to a private equity firm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we've already seen a bunch of deal-making in 2019. Today alone, we had Newmont Mining announcing it's going to buy Gold Corp. It's a $10 billion deal. We want to get into uh, the M&A space. Some thoughts on that. Scott Rosten is with us. He's a president and founder of Training the Street. It's a company that provides learning experiences and training for the finance professional. He joins uh, us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here. Happy New Year. happy new year so tell us a little bit about um when you look at the m environment and i do think about the training programs that you're thinking about you need to do for finance right. professionals for, to, to kind of fit the current MA space so first of all let's talk about the MA environment what you're seeing and what's interesting
3: well i think one big theme well first of all going back to your segment a couple minutes ago newport let's take let's take newmont me, newmont yeah that just shows you that companies are going to do deals for strategic reasons yeah they're still doing it because the deal makes sense Put the other macro environments and uncertainties on the side. If a deal makes sense, they're still going to go forward. Versus another capital market's other end, take IPOs. They need the SEC to review the documents to get those out. So that has been shut down. Correct. Hopefully temporarily. But so I think that just shows different markets. So M&A will continue to happen, especially when companies when the deals make sense.
1: And what did you beg? You know, I mean… Every time, especially on a Monday, you know, we come in, a little Merger, merger Monday, Monday action. Right. Uh, what, what did you make of this type of deal? Obviously, as you say, some synergies uh, there. Is this... A, a harbinger
3: uh, of sorts or
1: mm. is this going to be sort of case by case
3: I think more case by case maybe not in the gold sector for example there's just not a large large yeah. player so yeah. there's this limit to another factors there and I think actually the synergies Jason though interesting here are very limited relatively speaking you can't really put two mines together right you can't move <laughs> that that type of structure merge these mines right but <laughs> you can rationalize a food and <gasps> beverage production it. capacity right you can take capacity from one side of town and move it to another if you're making it consumer-type product. Right. So those cost savings are easier to do. So this is a little more less tangible. This is more about opportunity, about optimizing the portfolio. How can they look at their projects and think, What's going to be the best one for the
2: future? But,
0: Scott, are folks maybe seeing, you know, CEOs who maybe have been holding meetings over the last couple of months or maybe over the past years thinking about a deal and doing something, having seen the market decline, saying, OK, if I want to do a share, a stock deal, like let me do it now before the stocks start to go up. Like you, you can get – you can now do the deal at a lower – valuation
3: sure but if you're issuing shares yours may have gone down too so it's, it's it's a red uh, so fair. a share exchange like you saw this one with newmont and, and gold corp is a relative value right. so if you've both have gone down 10 percent, it's the same relative value but if the acquirer's gone up and the target's gone down then they have a stronger currency to use and that's where also cash given where interest rates are still while they are creeping and moving around a little bit they're yeah. still at historic lows so the cash currency is still very powerful and very strong Um, And that is another potential, you know, elephant gun to pull.
1: So you're a former banker. You started this company about 20 years ago. You are inside some of the biggest banks, business schools. You teach down at Keenan Flagler. That's correct. Uh, So as you talk to these sort of up and comers, these newly minted uh, bankers, what are they like? What are they thinking? What's their expectation for this early part of their career?
3: They want the experiential learning. They want to get that hands on experience. And that's where we and during the training programs are giving them deal simulations of let's walk through this transaction. What are the technical? What skills you're going to do. Let's build the financial forecast. Let's analyze this company. Let's look at the valuation. How do we come up with this valuation? What is the what could a private equity firm pay? We're doing a leveraged buyout analysis. What could a strategic buyer pay? And we're analyzing the synergy. So we're going through the all the nuts and bolts for lack of a term. Right. To give them that toolkit, but more importantly, give them the experience. So when they hit the desk, that simulation is wait a minute, I've been here before, I'm now staffed on a deal, and that simulation means I can now jog faster or run faster with the transaction.
0: How is it different from what you would do during an MBA program?
3: Um, We're much more practical and hands-on. We often will be on campus, let let me give you, for example, the MBA programs, we'll come on campus to do an interview prep-type workshop. In say a one day format where it is very targeted towards the type of questions and expectations for an interview. But most of the MBAs looking to go to Wall Street are career switchers. So they don't have that practical finance Mm -hmm. or banking background but they want to get into investment banking so they're learning corporate finance in school they're learning accounting and that's very essential but we're giving them effectively an accelerated jump start on that process
0: i'm guessing that with all the increased regulatory oversight that that makes you even busier than before is that uh, fair or no? Yeah,
3: we're 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 focused more on the technical skill side. You are so okay. it's not on the regulatory aspects um, that and then some of the compliance aspects we're partnering with our clients to make sure we're we're still it's still the bread and butter of how to use Excel more efficiently to do yeah. financial analysis. Wow,
1: I love this stuff. I, I could keep talking about cool. this all afternoon. Uh, Scott Rostin, President and Founder, Training the Street (TTS) as it's known here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Kids still want to grow up and be uh, investment bankers. Too. I know <laughs>
2: they do.
0: We are definitely focusing on the banks this week, the big banks, all reporting results. And it got underway today, uh, courtesy of Citigroup. Uh, shares of Citigroup, by the way, have bounced off uh, an early sell-off following that company's uh, earnings release. Let's talk about the quarter. Anton Schutz is with us, president, back with us, I should say, president and chief investment officer at Menden Capital Advisors, also Senior Portfolio Manager at RMB Capital with over a billion dollars in assets under management. He joins us on the phone from Rochester, New York. By the way, the RMB Menden Financial Services Fund beating just about all of its peers over the past five years. We've got uh, an average annual return of about 11% uh, in each of those years over the past five. Hey, Anton, great to have you here. Citigroup, it's so funny, I was listening to surveillance early this morning and I thought, oh my God, this stock's going to come undone and here it is. It is up more than four percent how do you see the quarter
4: yeah I mean it was I think it was less about the quarter and the fact that you know the selling of it was so savage ahead of the quarter especially in the month of December that it you know had gone below book value and so the quarter wasn't terrific um, you know thick was slower they took a charge off of one currency fund which made it look worse but uh, at the end of the day credit quality was fine you know, the, the lending part of Citi was fine, and, you know, I think people sort of looked at it, and looked at the regional banks and, and Citi, and said, hey, things are okay. You know, this is not a disaster. Credit quality hasn't gotten bad. You know, margin's not a disaster. And by the way, they're going to return $60 billion of capital in the next three years.
1: <laughs> right. Reiterated
4: and iterated on their conference call.
1: Well, and Anton, that you know, the initial reaction you sort of alluded to earlier, like, was not great, and so they needed to to hear uh, a little bit more are people is it safe to say people are a little skittish as we get into uh, earnings season right now?
4: yeah, boy, are they skittish um, because the stocks told a story i think that's 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 a bit different than the than the fundamentals and i think particularly yeah. in the regionals you know the fundamentals will play out you know decently um you know loan growth actually i think will be okay for the fourth quarter. mean people have you know really sort of worried about loan growth and there've been all these debt funds and and, you know, look, liquidity in those debt funds kind of went down a lot in December as money flowed out of uh, some of the ETFs that was out there buying debt and competing with the banks.
0: Hey, what did you make, though, of um, this Asian hedge fund uh, that hurt the fixed income results, though, uh, and, and talking about this charge of 100 to $200 million for losses tied to the loans in connection with that? Uh, they, The company's CFO said it's in accordance with, you know, Citigroup's risk appetite and all that good stuff. Um, Anton, uh, I mean, is this just a bank being a bank and this is what they do? And if they had you know, earn 100 to $200 million on it or what have you, we'd all be like, hey, nice move. But I, I wonder how we see it as a loss. Do we think that the bank was remiss in terms of watching its risk exposure?
4: You know, I, I think that, you know, I mean, banks are in the business to occasionally lose money on, on, on lines of business. I mean, they, they do take risk. Now, the moves we had in December were incredibly violent. And, and that fund apparently had some pretty good leverage on and. You know, it's about risk management, and you know, maybe they they tighten their standards a bit after that, uh, particularly on a currency type of fund. But yeah, no, that's I mean, it's never acceptable to lose that kind of money, but it happens, and you have to tighten standards. And you know, again, given given the size of the city and the and the billions of dollars that are did in this quarter, you know, I'm not saying it's a drop in the bucket, but it you know, it, it's really about the future, and not letting that kind of mistake happen again with any single fund or that type of leverage. And I think they've tightened up their standards quite a bit.
1: So, Anton, let's go down a level, if we can, on the regional banks, because I I wonder as you start to get these results and as you start as you continue to follow them day to day, are there certain areas of the country? Are there certain themes that you're picking up because we are getting these big Questions, I guess, around you know the the health overall of the U.S. economy, especially with all these headwinds, be it trade or government shutdown or just general economic
4: malaise. Sure, um, and and clearly, some of the numbers you know have also been pretty spectacular, like the the jobs number last right. Friday. True, fair point. Um, so so actually, two Fridays ago, it seems so recent to have that good news, but. Um, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, one of the things I look at is is sort of the movement of business and people. And there's a pretty steady move out of high tax jurisdictions to to low or no tax jurisdictions, Mm -hmm. where in some cases the weather's also better. Um, So, you know, I think that's important. Uh, You know, one of the places I like is Texas. Obviously, we've seen oil prices come down, but not come down to a level where they're, you know, creating damage. Um, And also, you know, that economy is diversified quite a bit. Clearly, you know, the international side hopefully will sort itself out because I think the manufacturing side numbers have not been strong because people just don't know where their supply chain is. I mean, we need to you know solve this tariff issue. So, you know, I don't have a lot of exposure in a lot of the manufacturing states, but I uh, do have exposure in the southeast, which has benefited a great deal from the Panama Canal and clearly, you know, moving goods back and forth through that canal is going to be important. Trade is, 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 critical.
0: Hey, what does what we got from Citigroup tell us about the other banks to come here? Um, Anton, in terms of JP Morgan, Wells, Bank of America, Goldman, does it tell us anything? I mean, each bank's got their own kind of mixed yeah. mix, if you will, <laughs> right? And their exposures.
4: Yeah. It's, it, it is a real, yeah, they're, they're all very different business models. Um, you know, people have looked at fake and said, oh, that, you know, translates to Goldman. The Goldman, I don't think has got that kind of loss and it's, you know, prime brokerage business. Let's hope they don't. Uh, Wells Fargo obviously has a, has a much bigger mortgage business, and there'll be some big shifts this quarter. You know, I think J.P. Morgan's probably you know the broadest of the bunch, and will learn the most of all these other businesses, including trust and custody, from J.P. Morgan tomorrow. Um, you know, Bank America a little little simpler, a little more domestic, and a little more focused on on rates increasing and great deposit costs and you know, I think we'll look at them again as a look through to loan growth and margin. But uh, every one of those brings something different to the table. But I, I think what, what they all you know brought to the table together going into the starting season was a tremendous beat down on the stock prices. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was reflective. I mean, I, I go back to the Goldman Sachs conference in early December, and, you know, managements are all telling a pretty good story, and the stocks are down 5% that day. And, you know, it, I believe it was one very large hedge fund leaving the space entirely that did it. But, you know, every meeting I had with management that day, they're shrugging their shoulders going, boy, we want to buy back a lot of stock. This makes no sense. Things are good. We're doing fine. We don't we don't see trouble. And obviously, the thing we're all going to be looking for is, are we seeing shifts in in credit quality out there? And from everybody I've talked to, you know, going into earnings, I'm I'm not expecting a lot of trouble on the credit front at all. You know, people have jobs and, and businesses generally doing pretty well.
1: Anton Schutz is President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors, also Senior Portfolio Manager at RMB Capital, overseeing more than a billion dollars. Joining us on the phone from Rochester. So, Carol, I think I speak for both of us when I say this is one of the most compelling series Uh, that we have seen in a long time here at Bloomberg. It's around predatory lending and. Specifically, it's around this concept of confessions of judgment. And I have to say, I think I told you this story. I was down in Atlanta over the holidays and a friend of the family sort of buttonholed me at an event and said, you've got to tell these guys that they did a great public service. This is a guy in the lending arena who didn't know about this and basically made every one of his friends read this series. Zach Meiter, Zeke Fox, they are the authors of this. Zach Meiter joins us now. Remind us what confessions of judgment are, and tell us the latest, because we're finally seeing people take
5: action against it. Sure. So Basically, to get a loan, a small business company wants to get a loan, and the lender says, sure, fine, we'll give you the money, but first you sign this document. That's It's sort of like pleading guilty in a criminal case, but you sign it before you did anything wrong. So It would be kind of like the cops going around a neighborhood getting guilty pleas from anyone just in case somewhere some crime is committed. And so uh, these these uh, borrowers are in a position where at any point the lender can go to court, there's no trial, there's no notice. They're not even told about it. They get a judgment that the lender can then use to seize their bank accounts, seize their credit card uh, account, uh, money from their credit card processor, do all these things to, to kind of shut them down without any kind of uh, hearing or notice. And, and this exact- has been abused.
0: Right. that's exactly what ha- went on, yes. right? Yes. And—,
5: yeah. and, and and New York State is the place where nationally, the entire national industry that's doing this, they're using the New York State court systems to do this, especially counties outside of New York, uh, this New York City area, upstate counties, some of them very small, that are being deluged with these filings that are just sort of automatic uh, death sentences for small businesses.
0: But it could be a small business in Florida, where yes. this is happening. It's mostly
5: yet, outside of New York. Right. And almost that, entirely outside. But of New
0: nonetheless, York. goes through the court system in New York. How is that possible? And it
5: doesn't even go through the court. I mean, it, no,
0: it, right. it, it, no, judge no judge ever sees The court sees system is right. basically a
5: clerk being like, yep, yeah. boom, rubber and then stamp. It's literally it's like a gone. rubber stamp. It's yeah. literally yeah. a rubber stamp. How is
0: there. that possible?
5: That's what the law in New York allows. And the the lenders have been very clever about um, finding a way to n- navigate around a couple of different laws that, um, that would otherwise uh, prevent this. And so what's new is now a couple of the clerks, so the clerks play this key role. They have to do the rubber stamp. And they've been saying historically they're required to. They're not really supposed to exercise judgment. Well, now three clerks who represent about 50% of the the, um, volume of these cases have all in the past couple weeks said, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. How come? They'd
0: I'm
6: just get, curious. <laughs> like, no, no, no. I'm like, because of it. Zach. So, no, so no, no. But
5: to, but, no, But they had to have a reason. Two of yeah. them gave a kind of legal rationale, their interpretation of the way the state statute. They essentially took a hard look at the statute and says, "We think we have a legal leg to stand on," rejecting almost all these cases. And the third one said, basically, "There's a active New York Attorney General investigation that came out just after our story, and we're going to wait because till of that's your over. Story, right. right? We're going to wait till that's over before we start approving these again." So um, whether any of these actions would stand up if they were challenged in court, I don't know if the, the lenders are really going to want to pick a fight with right. these clerks. Well,
1: that's really one of the big points here is that if this if this avenue is essentially closed, maybe they'll go and find something else. But they may at least it, – it, it's almost like pre- preventative in some ways. It's like a, a, an alarm system or something where a crook is like, well – That house seems to be guarded. I'm going to move on.
6: And they are moving elsewhere, right?
5: Yeah, so it's important to keep in mind that this is not snuffing out 50% of the confessions of judgment. It's causing these uh, these lenders to go to counties like Westchester County, just north of New York City. I think Jason might be a resident in your county, uh, (laughs) seeing this big surge and saying, you know what, we're still in business. We're going to keep rubber stamping these things until state law changes. And so the 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 water's just kind of moving down down the hill in a different down down the channel. river uh, yeah. as it were.
0: You mentioned until state law changes because there are states that have what outlawed these kinds of loans.
5: There are some states where it's actually a misdemeanor to ask someone to sign one. Mm. Of course these these lenders do business in those states all the time. Right. Um, but there so there, state laws are all over the place on this issue. Uh, very few of them are as permissive as New York with no kind of safeguards, like uh, notice periods or or safeguards to make sure people don't uh, you know, have legal advice before they get them, things like that. And
1: important to note, as you say, the state attorney general, new state attorney general, I believe, here in, in New York State is looking into this uh, pretty aggressively, it sounds like.
5: Yes, they, it actually – the investigation opened uh, last year before the, the new previous, attorney general – it That's just, right. It just
0: says to me, though, it also reminds us that if you run a small business, the places you can go for money are somewhat limited sometimes, right? And absolutely. so you're sometimes forced to do this.
5: Absolutely. And I think oftentimes the, the customer base here is people who need money very quickly yeah, and maybe aren't super sophisticated on the financial side. They're good at running a plumbing company or a, or a restaurant, but not um, not calculating the interest rate. They need it fast, and these guys are very aggressive about selling them. And so oftentimes they're not really making uh, tough decisions about what what's the cheapest form of ca- capital they can get.
0: Great reporting.
5: Phenomenal,
1: phenomenal. Zach Meider, Projects and Investigations reporter, Pulitzer Prize winner uh, here at Bloomberg. His series with Zeke Fox uh, really moving the needle here. Uh, check out the series and check out the latest story. Uh, this is getting cracked down on here in New York State.
0: I'm in my car.
2: Turn on the radio.
1: Hey, how about you let me drive?
2: Oh, no. No, no, no.
1: Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving.
2: Drive home.
1: Excuse me, I want to drive.
2: Just drive, baby. Just
1: drive,
0: baby. Drive it's the question that drives us. Drive.
2: This is The Drive to the Close. That punk to music will drive
4: us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close. Paul Eidelman is senior investment strategist over at Russell Investments. The company firm has roughly $287 billion in assets under management. Paul joining us uh, from Seattle on the phone. So, interesting week. Uh, Of course, we're really focused Paul on the bank results. And here we had Citigroup that initially, if you listen to all the reporting this morning, we thought it was going to fall out of bed. And lo and behold, it managed to rally. Um, what does it say about maybe what we're going to get from the other big banks? And what does what the big banks overall say, tell us about what's going on in the economy and the market environment?
6: Well, I think Citi's results this morning were pretty interesting. They beat expectations, but mostly because of diligent cost management, not a a particularly upbeat or or outsized expectation in terms of economic activity and and the outlook. Um, That can probably carry over to the banking sector in the aggregate, but I think the, the fourth quarter earnings season is going to be incredibly important given the contours that we've seen recently around the global cycle. Evidence of a global slowdown, a lot of angst in the business surveys around the impact of trade uncertainty onto supply chains and CEO confidence, and I think that's going to be a big question mark in this earnings season. How much of a slowdown are we going to see here in corporate fundamentals? The first three quarters of this year were really outstanding, 25% earnings growth. Consensus expectations are much more muted here in the fourth quarter, and I think that that global growth weakness is a major component of that.
1: And so, who else are you especially eager to hear from, either in terms of a particular company or even a sector?
6: Um, I think there, there's really two big watch points for us. One is around uh, the earnings for mega-cap technology companies. Apple, I think, was really interesting with the negative revenue guidance that they gave just a couple of weeks ago partly due to uh, weakness in greater China. And and just given how much of the market strength of the last couple of years has come from mega cap tech, any weakness or strength there I think would be a a big catalyst for uh, market dynamics here in the next couple of weeks. And then on top of that, I think it's really just the health of the U.S. and global industrial cycle. And we've seen evidence basically throughout twenty eighteen that global growth has been weakening, but just in the last couple of weeks and more recently there's greater evidence that the u s economic cycle might be slowing as well uh, with that sharp drop in the ism manufacturing survey so getting better clarity on the results uh, out of the industrial sector and also just uh, management guidance and and Uh, confidence for the forward-looking outlook will be really important, given uh, these question marks around whether or not uh, we could be uh, faced with a recession here in the next uh, year or two.
0: Paul, we had a couple conversations already uh, just today on air uh, with our Gina Martin-Adams and our Dave Wilson, just really highlighting the rotation from growth into value. And I'm curious what that says to you, the significance of it.
6: Yeah. Yeah, well, when we look at the revisions to fundamentals and revisions to earnings expectations, a lot of the weakness in the downgrade cycle has come from uh, the large tech businesses with uh, significant downgrades to the 2019 outlook, basically across uh, the FANG complex and, and large tech more broadly. So I think that's been a repricing of This view that technology and and the U.S. market more broadly would sustain really incredible uh, fundamental growth for the foreseeable future, those expectations have come back down, and I think that's been a major component behind uh, the rotation. Uh, Another, I think, really interesting rotation has been um, the the transition towards uh, low volatility performance, and I think that that more defensive flavor is uh, all about the health of the global cycle and Uh, downside risk right now. So I think it's both this growth versus value uh, transition and then also the transition towards uh, the the low volatility factor as well.
1: And, Paul, you've made a comparison, which is a little bit um, scarier, at least uh, uh, kind of a little womp womp to uh, the late 90s, where we were at the turn of this century, where we were economically, where we were in the stock market. It does feel a little bit familiar. Tell us about that.
6: Well, I think this has been a very long economic expansion, and that's a good news story. But coincident with that strength means we're we're starting to accumulate some imbalances both in, in the economy and financial markets. So with all of this economic strength, uh, we would argue that the U.S. labor market is now on the cusp of overheating, if not overheating already. We're seeing more and more signs that wage inflation is starting to accelerate in a pretty meaningful way. Uh, And that's a risk for the the medium-term outlook, because as those cost pressures uh, accelerate, it it could put some um, risk into the the profit margin outlook for for businesses and arguably would... uh, Uh, mean that the Fed might need to restart its tightening cycle after uh, what is every indication of a pause right now. So I think that that's a medium-term concern from an economic perspective. And then in financial markets, just with this also being one of the longest bull markets ever, the equity market has also gotten uh, quite expensive. Now, obviously, we've retraced on valuation multiples quite a bit with the the fourth quarter sell-off. But when we consider prices versus a sustainable level of earnings, thinking about the potential for uh, mean reversion lower in profit margins, we would still score uh, the U.S. equity market as being roughly one standard deviation expensive, even with uh, Mm. the fourth quarter sell-off. So it's that combination of economic imbalance and modestly expensive uh, equity market valuations, which gives us the the parallel to the late 90s. So
0: where do you go? Short-term bonds? Where, Where do you go?
6: I think as a medium-term strategy, we're seeing uh, really good value uh, in in medium-tenor U.S. government bonds. So uh, five-year Treasury yields at around 2.5 percent, we think, are are good value. So if if you were to think about a recession occurring sometime in the next three years, Mm. our fair value estimate on the five-year bond will be 1.7 percent. So good value in in medium-term government bonds given – in a recessionary dynamic, the, the Fed would likely be forced to cut rates back to zero again, right. reinstate forward guidance again, and potentially even restart QE again. Got um, it. So I think that's that's one uh, area of opportunity. And then within currency markets, yeah. uh, the yeah. yen as a safe haven and, and cheap value currency on a, on a sort of purchasing power basis. Uh, is another area of the market that we like.
0: Paul, thank you so much. Paul Eidelman, he is Senior Investment Strategist over at Russell Investments. Uh, lots of money under management, $287 billion to be exact. And uh, Paul joining us on the phone from Seattle. Right now, those equity markets, uh, Jason, we're just coming off our best levels of the session, but we're still down across the board, but definitely off our worst levels as well in terms of the equity trade
1: right and certainly some stocks moving a bit today we had a nice green week last week the market seems to be trying to take into account all of these headwinds that are going on the shutdown trade etc close coming up next
0: yeah a lot of big macro stories you are listening to bloomberg radio
1: thanks for listening to bloomberg business week you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com you can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m eastern only
2: on bloomberg radio